150,000 copies sold in its first two weeks of release, and a million by the end of January in 76, three months after its release. The first song ever to hit number one in the UK twice, years apart, with the same version. Freddie was awarded the Ivor Novello for it, and his vocal performance in it was chosen as the greatest in rock history by readers of Rolling Stone. Over 1.6 billion downloads and streams, two Grammy nominations in 77, one of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Its video is the oldest music video to reach 1 billion YouTube views. The Muppets did a cover video. It was voted the Song of the Millennium in 2000 and was recorded in the Guinness Book of Records as the number one song of all time. Three times platinum in the UK. Ten times platinum. Diamond in the US. The Big Bang of Queen, the track that took them from success to monumental rock superstardom. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the one, the only, Bohemian Rhapsody. Dive number 45, track 11 on Queen's fantastic album, their fourth, A Night at the Opera, with, of course, Freddie Mercury at the helm, his baby, which began in the late 60s, its beginnings. Yes, Freddie was working on this for years. When he was in another band prior to Queen, or maybe it was just when Queen was called Smile, I've read different conflicting information about this, that he was actually working on this song when he was in another band called Wreckage. But I think the most common thing I read is that when Queen was still smile before he made it what it is and decided to call it Queen, which by the way, Brian and Roger were not that fond of that idea (laughs) at first. But anyway, Freddie was working on this song at that time before Queen even existed, before John came along. So this song goes way back and it was referred to in its ballad infancy as the cowboy song, especially by Roger. If I remember right, this was something Roger said he called it because it sounded like a cowboy song. I mean, the guy's singing about how he killed a man. (laughs) So yes, I think that working title may have started with Raj. This is all melodic, progressive, hard rock, opera-tinged glam metal pop. That is another genre I have seen. Because let's face it, this thing is way too addicting, way too catchy to just be progressive hard rock. That is the primary category we're in. But as we know, Queen are outside the box. They color outside the lines. Nothing is written in stone. Queen pushes those boundaries. I love it. I love it. And we are here talking about Freddie's marvelous Bohemian Rhapsody. It was a single released on October 31st, Halloween, in 1975 in the UK, and December 2nd, In 1976 in the U.S., isn't that interesting (laughs) that it took so long to be released in the U.S. after it was released in the U.K.? It charted, of course, and this is big, this is huge, this is monumental. This was their first number one in the U.K. for nine consecutive weeks, which was a record at the time. It hit number nine in the U.S., and it was also number one in Canada, Belgium, Australia, the Netherlands, and New Zealand in 1976. We're at 144 BPM, but that is not 
dialed in. That's not locked in. That is the primary tempo of the song, but we have a lot of fluctuation here because of the emotion, the expression, the creativity behind this, especially as we get into the outro. There's very much a slowdown. And of course, it feels totally natural given the context and the transitions of the song. We're in 4-4 time, but there's a little bit of 9-8 in the first phase of the intro. And we'll talk about that as we get into the specifics of the song. I have been waiting so long to talk about this song since the very moment I decided to do this crazy thing and go through every single Queen song on every single studio album. And we are here. We're in the keys of B flat major, E flat major, A major, and of course, F major. We're not surprised. Freddie loves to jump from key to key to key, and he loves to do things with his arrangements, including accidentals, augmented chords, diminished, etc., etc. If I had more time, we would talk more about music theory, and I would try to explain those to you. It's very difficult to do when I don't have a visual reference, though. So we'll just keep going with the breakdown of Bohemian Rhapsody. If you haven't heard this already, you know, truthfully, this dive, I could have just said, this is Freddie's magnum opus and ended it there. Truly, that's all I, I really needed to say because who doesn't know this song? I mean, I just told you guys, it's been viewed on YouTube over a billion times. So what's left to talk about? I hesitated getting into this dive. I truly did. I thought, what else can I bring to the table? But of course, I have a lot of thoughts about this, and I wanted to elaborate as much as I could. So this song is all about an internal struggle, and, and the jury is still out exactly what this song means, whether it's to be taken at face value, perhaps it's a metaphorical struggle with sexuality, giving up a former life to embrace a new one, the Faust legend wherein the protagonist makes a deal with the devil, so many interpretations. Or is it simply all that it appears to be? A story about a man who kills another and faces his fate. Whatever the topic or the true meaning, its message universally relates to all of us. This is a key element of the song. This is why it works despite all of the changes in the sound, the genre, the arrangement. It's universally relatable. We all understand this. We all know what it's like to go through something that we regret, even if it's not as intense as killing another. We all understand that feeling of regret and facing our fate. That gorgeous, memorable piano, that lyrical guitar and the hard rock riff guitar, the operatic vocal performance, all of it perfectly singable. This is what makes this work. It's all in a song that broke all the rules and a song that never should have been successful. A song affectionately known as Fred's Thing throughout its construction. A song that was written in chunks on a phone book, completely finished and planned and composed in Freddie's head but a complete mystery to everyone else, even while it was being recorded. It's the only rock epic to include such an enthusiastic, full-on operatic performance. Other bands may have meshed styles. We've seen this a lot. Folk and rock, pop and rock, etc. But with Freddie knowingly leading the way, Queen were the only ones to boldly go this far. That's what set Bohemian Rhapsody apart when it was released, and it still stands alone as a symphony of mad sounds perfectly intertwined. It's absolutely one of the only songs where one can literally sing any lyric from it and instantly pick it up with a crowd. Bodies aching all the time. I see a little silhouette of a man. <laughs> Carry on, carry on. Literally any phrase, any moment from Bo Rap immediately encourages any and all in earshot to join in. 
There are very few songs with this kind of appeal, with a completely unconventional song structure, an intro, ballad verses, anthematic opera, a hard rock breakdown, and a poignant coda, and mysterious lyrics that tell a dramatic story with intense expression. Bohemian Rhapsody achieves what very few rock songs or any songs can. It unifies, endures, transcends expectations, and it surprises. It's overwhelmingly rock, but it's more than that. It's Queen. It's Freddie. It's a state of mind, his state of mind. Echoed motifs and hooks take an otherwise acyclic and extremely experimental song with polyrhythms and multiple key changes and countless accidentals and turn it into something addicting, memorable, and catchy. Legendary. I don't even need to say anymore, really. This universal message of regret and uncertainty, and then acceptance is wrapped up in this complex thing that shouldn't have gone anywhere. But thanks to the clever persistence of particularly one man, and then the ultimate fandom created when people heard this amazing, stunning, unique rock number, what is this? Everybody wanted to have it. The label essentially was forced to release this as a single because of the success of this on the radio. That's how incredible this song is. Because guys, this song in its entirety was not supposed to be released. It's six minutes long. If you've seen the film Bohemian Rhapsody, you know all about this. It's at least double the length of pretty much any song on the radio back then. Queen's own manager, John Reed, said, you cannot release this. Elton John said, you should not release this. They tried to cut it down. They took the opera section out. They cut things back. Nothing worked. And that's because it was always meant to be released as a whole. Would not have worked any other way. It was played 682 times from 75 through 86, and it popped up throughout the 2000s. Combined with cover, band, and other artists' performances, it's been played an incredible, you ready? 3,739 times live over the years. The boys played it heavily in 76, 170 times. This was the most they played it in a year. And in those earliest live performances, at least in several, the song was sometimes scattered throughout the set list. They'd open the entire night with the operatic section, fall into the rock riff, shift into another song entirely before coming back to bow rap songs later, usually with the ballad verses as a part of a medley. They'd throw the outro on the set list somewhere. Now, on Live Killers from 79, Freddie opens bow rap with the a cappella vocalizations from the intro of Mustafa, a number from their album Jazz. Then he begins the piano hook before singing the first verse. They played the song in its entirety, but they never played or sang the song's intro with that complex vocal layer, the four and the three-part harmonies, all from Freddie. And the operatic section was always played from the studio recording because there was no way they'd ever accomplished that live. The guys would take a quick breather before bursting in with the rock breakdown, especially Brian having a blast on his guitar. It was a fantastic transition and the intensity in arenas and on the stage was electric in that moment. The crowd loved the operatic section singing out every phrase and note. So by the time the guys reappeared to perform live again, the audience was practically jumping out of their seats, their skin even, ready to explode. I, I've been there. I was in that moment when I saw Queen and Adam Lambert in 2019. They play this song all the way through. The operatic section comes in. They show the video on the screen and then the guys bust back out onto that stage and you're all in it with them. They were always so good at connecting with an audience. The quality of this number live varied a lot over the years, though. There's one from 76 with a particularly drunk 
Freddie, and he forgets some lyrics even, but to his credit, he's still on key. Amazing. Many of the lead vocals are quite high, and Freddie would sometimes, especially in the late 70s when tours were packed against recording sessions back-to-back, he would struggle with that high register. But being the fantastic vocalist and performer he was, he was very good at adjusting his notes when needed to achieve a fantastic effect and a wonderful performance regardless. I almost prefer later live performances like Live at Wembley. There's an elegance, a maturity in their playing, and Freddie's voice just sounds fabulous and very full. I love Roger's embellishments on the drums. Brian does some unique variations in his solo performances. John, that man, I don't think I've talked about him enough these last few dives. Always nails it. Absolutely no question. Lots of awesome comments from the guys about this number, of course. I mean, it is their most popular. It's their most, one of their most mysterious that is their most popular. Freddie commented to Rolling Stone in 1976, quote, I always wanted to do something operatic. I wanted something with a mood setter at the start, going into a rock type of thing, which completely breaks off into an opera section, a vicious twist, and then returns to the theme. I don't really know anything about opera myself, just certain pieces. It was as far as my limited capacity could take me. That statement wows me. I I remember reading Freddie's comments about the song, and there are many. I just chose a few and kind of (laughs) bunched them together there. But when he talks about not really knowing a lot of opera, his understanding of it is astounding. The way he arranged the vocals in that section is incredible. Brian has said, quote, Freddie was a very complex person, flippant and funny on the surface, but he concealed insecurities and problems in squaring up his life with his childhood. He never explained the lyrics, but I think he put a lot of himself into that song, unquote. The guys have talked about this before. There was this unwritten rule that none of them would interrogate the other about where the lyrics inspiration came from. They never crossed that line. And I think that's an incredibly respectful thing to do amongst yourselves in a band, to just say, if this is great, we're doing it, period. We don't really care where the inspiration came from. We don't really care what it means. We're going to play it. We're going to record it. And the guys are very honorable of that commitment to each other, to respect that privacy, to respect those boundaries. I don't know. I just, I get super, I get super romantic about all this, but I really appreciate it on an artistic level that they went to such great lengths to protect each other's inspiration, especially if it came from a very personal place as this may have. Producer Roy Thomas Baker told Performing Songwriter Magazine, quote, I was standing at the back of the control room and you just knew that you were listening for the first time to a big page in history. Something inside me told me that this was a red letter day. And it really was, unquote. This sentiment is pretty universal amongst the guys, producers, sound engineers. They all kind of felt like... This is an amazing thing. What's happening here? What's taking place? I think they knew, and they've said it before, they knew this was either going to flop or be huge. And thankfully, it was huge. In 2011, in an interview with Q Magazine, Roger said, quote, I loved it. The first bit that he played to me was the verse, Mama just killed a man, da 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 gun against his, all that. I thought, that's great. That's a hit. It was, in my head, a simpler entity then. I didn't know it was going to have a wall of mock Gilbert and Sullivan stuff, you know, some of which was written on the fly, unquote. That is awesome to get that little bit from Roger about some of it being written on the fly. Now, we know that Queen are very intentful with the way they write. There's a lot of comments from Brian, Roger, all the guys over the years talking about how they wanted to achieve a sound in a song 
Brian wanted to do it with good company. Freddie wanted to do it with his vaudeville numbers. And they succeeded in spades with this. And, and just to know that there was so much improvising still going on in the studio, they must have had a blast with this. I've read so many comments from everyone involved that this was a grueling process, but the fun they had was off the charts. I can only imagine what they got up to with this. Regarding the meaning of the song and its enduring popularity, Roger has also said, quote, like many operatic librettos, it's a universal story dealing in tragedy. He's going to be executed for murder and he regrets it. But in the end, he's philosophical about it. Wow. So Roger seems to take this at face value. Either that or he is being very respectful and kind in protecting the legacy of Freddie if he knows something that almost no one else does. I have so many questions about this song. I have so many questions about not just its structure, but the inspiration behind it. What were Freddie's intentions? I've got the same questions everybody has, but I would never ask them because it's not right. Part of the enduring popularity of the song is the mystery around it, the speculation. What does this really mean? And why would we want to ruin that, right? You guys, I've got so many fun facts about bow rap. It's kind of crazy. So let's, ju let's just do it. Let's do it. It began as three separate songs, which Freddie decided to mesh together. And supposedly one of these pieces was called Real Life in Its Infancy. The operatic section includes 180 overdubs of vocals, which were bounced down multiple times over to accommodate the 24-track tape used, which ultimately went transparent. You guys, think about that. 180 vocal overdubs. 180. They spent nearly 12 hours a day for a week recording their vocals for that monstrosity of an arrangement in the operatic section. Just the sheer motivation, the dedication, and they nailed it. It's fantastic. DJ Kenny Everett was slipped a copy of Bo Rap for personal use only, and he wasn't to play it on the radio. He was specifically told not to play it. But his love for the song was so immense, he teased snippets of it on his show, and he played the song in its entirety 14 times in one weekend, phone lines jammed, everyone wanted to buy this new song, and this forced the label's hand, and the song was released as a single to massive success. It was released on Halloween, was given a picture cover, the first Queen single ever released this way in Britain, and that's a beautiful cover. I want to talk about it. It's iconic. The guys are all sitting down. It's black and white. Freddie is sitting there most prominently. You can see his beautiful satin pants. Roger's got his striped socks on. I love the way the guys look in this photo. It's so stoic and just that perfect rock and roll look. I mean, bands like Queen set the bar when it came to image and how you were supposed to pose. I actually do prefer their images, photos that are more relaxed little bit more casual. You know, when you see behind the scenes and it's, it's candid, that's much more interesting. But there's something about these images like the one, the cover for Bo Rap that is so iconic. And I love all of the shots from that photo shoot. They're gorgeous. The guys are in their physical prime here. They're all beautiful. They're all stunning. It's how a lot of people think of Queen when they think of Queen. Or they think of Queen as Freddie with a mustache. <laughs> but me, I'm all about 70s Queen. So this is absolutely top notch for me, the cover of this single. To ensure the song's inclusion on television shows while the band were touring, and because they loathed the idea of miming on top of the pops again, they recruited Bruce Gowers, who directed Live at the Rainbow, to do a promotional film for Bo Rap. This video, filmed in four hours, it cost 4,500 pounds mimicked the band's iconic Queen 2 cover, which they, of course, were inspired by Marlene Dietrich to make with the harsh contrast lighting. The cascading shot of Mercury fading away in the video and the honeycomb illusion effect were practical effects using visual feedback by pointing the camera at the monitor for the cascade effect and a shaped lens for the honeycomb effect 
respectively. This video, you guys, it was filmed in a matter of hours. Most of the time these days, videos take days, and then there's a ton of post-production. Massive amounts of it, lighting changes, color filtering, special effects, you name it, removal of cords and cables, whatever. These guys went into, went into a warehouse and filmed this video in a matter of hours. And they did it for practicality. This wasn't even a thought, oh, let's start a new trend and do a video because nobody did stuff like that. They did it to make sure the song was included and, and played and shared. And not only did it work, it started a whole new thing. Editing the video, it only took five hours. And this concept, this video, essentially created the music video. Six years before MTV even debuted in 1981. Tell me that's not legendary. (laughs) It's amazing. In 92, when the song was featured prominently and memorably in Wayne's World, the song jumped back onto the U.S. charts, hitting number two. The song that knocked this off the number one chart position in the U.K. was Mamma Mia by ABBA. (laughs) You guys, Mamma Mia, let me go. (laughs) I love it. Did you know that? I have another little lovely ABBA tie-in. I'll talk about it later. Now, regarding the title of this song, it's thought Bohemian Rhapsody is a spin off of Franz Liszt Hungarian Rhapsody. However, Bohemian likely refers to the unconventional lifestyle of vagabonds and artists, with Rhapsody being a miscellaneous collection, a highly emotional utterance, or a one-movement musical work that is episodic yet integrated, free-flowing in structure, featuring a range of highly contrasted moods, color, and tonality. I know that's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot behind the word Rhapsody. And I think that's all the more reason why it was so incredibly appropriate to use it as the title. More fun facts. Freddie may have included the reference to Galileo, the astronomer and physicist, as a nod to Brian's love for astronomy. I mean, Brian is an astrophysicist now. There are a massive collection of outtakes from recording sessions for Bohemian Rhapsody, many with laughter, an impressive burp, which I can't tell is from Freddie or Roger, actually, the guys throwing shade at each other. I mean, you can tell this was a bear to do and a lot of fun to do as well. I love these snippets. You can go on YouTube and find them. Just to hear Freddie laughing at their mistakes It's a joyous sound. They all have such a good time together. It's great. Piano, bass, and drums were recorded together as the backing track. And I want to talk about that for a second. So Brian's guitar was recorded later because he was in the control room during the backing track recording. If you just listen to the backing track, which you can hear very well in a lot of different recordings. I've listened to it in this wonderful behind the scenes interview that Brian did about the making of Bohemian Rhapsody. It's immaculate. Freddie, Roger, and John together on piano, drums, and bass to get the backing track down. There are very minor, very tiny mistakes here and there. But when you're doing a backing track, You just got to nail it. And the truth is, knowing they all sat in the studio together and recorded this simultaneously together as a threesome is astounding. How many artists do that anymore? How many artists go into the studio and actually record a backing track together as a unit in perfect synchronized fashion? It's astounding. Gary Langan worked as an assistant engineer on this song when he was 19 years old and only 18 months into his apprenticeship. And he's mentioned how daunting the process was and he never realized it would be the biggest thing he ever did. Can you imagine being 19 years old? You're a little over a year into your career, to your apprenticeship, and you're recruited to work on this song. I've read a very lengthy interview with this guy, and he talked about how furious the pace was to get this done, and that it was intimidating. And he didn't know if it was insane and horrific what he was working on or something of a genius. And it was, thankfully, and obviously, (laughs) at this point, the latter. But just to know the sheer amount 
the intensity of what was happening to make this song. I mean, if it wasn't already obvious, 180 vocal overdubs, et cetera, et cetera. This was a monster of a song to make. But not a lot of people appreciated it at first, at first. Here's just a few things that people have said about this number that you might be surprised. A superficially impressive pastiche of incongruous musical styles. Alan Jones, Melody Maker. Another one. Among its many parts, there's scarcely a shred of a tune and certainly no one line to latch on to. Ray Fox Cumming, Record Mirror. Another one. Queen's lyrics are not the stuff of sonnets. Time Magazine. More. A brazen hodgepodge. Rolling Stone. In 1983, an article from the Daily Mail, Archive, commented on the song's perpetual position at the top of the charts, saying it was there long enough for many people to become convinced that the line, spare him his life from these monstrosities, was really spare him his life from these pork sausages. Pork sausages. I don't know. I don't know if that last comment is actually a bad one (laughs) because it was written almost 10 years after the song was released, but I found it quirky and odd and kind of insulting enough to include it in my how dare they section (laughs) from this pork sausages. I'm never going to hear that line the same ever again. But you guys know what, you know what it is. You know that the praise for this song nowadays is immeasurable and unending. Sound Magazine called it, quote, a dazzlingly clever epic from the fevered mind of Freddie Mercury, unquote. And in fact, while many critics at the time were indifferent about it or kind of unmoved by it, there was an almost unified opinion that somehow, some way, this thing would be a hit. Greg Lake of King's Crimson and ELP called Bo Rap a once-in-a-lifetime recording when his own I Believe in Father Christmas was kept from number one in the UK by Bo Rap. That's a pretty big deal for someone to say it's a once-in-a-lifetime recording, and I think that is a very astute thing to say. This is not a song that anybody could just come up with on any day. This is something that takes years to make, and when it happens, it's a flash and it's done. It's a miraculous thing and it's done. Bjorn Ulveus of ABBA, remember I talked about ABBA, said, quote, I was green with envy when I heard Bohemian Rhapsody, unquote. It's awesome. It's awesome to hear other artists talking about this song, especially someone from the group whose song knocked this off the number one spot. Bjorn went on to say it was a piece of sheer originality that took rock and pop away from the normal path. Now, in 2018, Emmy-nominated arranger, composer, and performer Erwin Fish commented on the song's experimental structure, saying, quote, it started basically with the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Beach Boys with good vibrations, the Beatles with a day in the life. Epic songs that pieced together different ideas into a cohesive whole. Queen in Bohemian Rhapsody took that idea and pushed it way over the top, unquote. What a great analyzation of this song. What a great summary of where we started and how we're doing, basically. Rock DJ Tommy Vance commented on the video. It became the first record to be pushed into the forefront by virtue of a video. Queen were certainly the first band to create a concept video. The video captured the musical imagery perfectly. You cannot hear that music without seeing the visuals in your mind's eye, unquote. The song as a whole, of course, is this fantastic genius piece of progressive rock songwriting, but it managed to massively appeal to a very wide array of fans. It was a first for most prog rock compositions done in this way, which tended to lean, they were usually too experimental eclectic or disjointed, with little melodic appeal. I, one, of, one of the best comments I've seen about Bo Rap is it is a holistic sonic experience. I think that sums it up perfectly. Because what you have is a song with all these movements in it that shouldn't make any sense. But it does. It does because it's Queen. It does because it's Freddie. And what a song it is. All of its craziness smashed in together, but what a song it is. Fantastical vocals, all Freddie, and almost 
all of them almost immaculate in their performance. There's a common misconception because of the video, partially, that all three, Brian, Roger, and Freddie, sang these vocals. But it's all fantastic, Freddie, with those marvelous sevenths in the chords, creating that suspension. The precision in these vocals is something to behold. Freddie was very good at getting an identical performance to layer vocals in not just tuning, but his tone. Interesting note too, there is a section of 9-8 meter in this intro that isn't noted even in sheet music. Most sheet music alternates between 4-4 and 5-4 bars. All of this aside, when that piano comes in, it's pure magic and a lot of reverb. Not something you immediately notice, but when you listen to the backing track, it's front and center. Let's talk more about the backing track. I just, I, I have to talk about it. The amazing quality of Freddie on piano, John on bass, and Roger on the drums to provide that guide track, which went through the whole song. Guys, when they got to the operatic sections, there are moments with no instrumentation, huge breaks, huge rests in the measures. Can you imagine what it took to come in simultaneously on the beats they needed to come in on? That's one of the outtakes. There's an outtake where all three of them come in on a beat after each other, and they were all supposed to be in at once. And they all immediately go, oh gosh, and Freddie just bursts out into this wonderful laughter. But that's what I'm getting at here, is the precision is, it's perfect. I'm just floored that they were able to accomplish that with probably minimal rehearsal. I'm sure they rehearsed, but at some point you have to just throw your hands up and go do it. And that can be pretty scary when you're recording and you only have so much time and tape to do it. You couldn't go back and endlessly record over and over again. No, once you did something, it was locked in. So those tiny little mistakes you have, they're simply there. And if you listen closely enough to the backing track, at the ends of some of the phrases, you can catch those little moments. Freddie hits a piano note that's a little bit off, but you know what? It's part of the magic of this stuff. As we go through this intro, the panning, back and forth, strategic and effective, that easy come, easy go, little high, little low, between the left and the right. In that moment, lots of things are happening. Semitone shifting, the piano reverb, the panning, the resolve in the middle as it comes back to the center. All of this creates structure and emotion, a tug and a pull. Any way the wind blows, that moment is one of my favorites. The way Freddie sings blows and, and glissandos up those notes. It's perfect. The flanged cymbal effect that creeps in and fades out. Perfection. So many seventh chords in here, a favorite chord of mine because it adds so much color to an otherwise square sound. And there it is bass on that resolution going into the ballad hook and the verse. Mama. Here's just one of the lyrical magical moments. You need not sing anything other than that line in that tone for everyone to know what song you're singing. In one word, Freddie captured a mood, an emotion, created something everyone can relate to. So many confessions of people crying out for their mama in moments of dread, sadness, despair, etc. That's what makes this so relatable, even in its experimentation. And I want to talk about the way Freddie's piano echoes and complements his lyrics. His piano performance is divine and stunning with that human metronome thing going on. But his ability to complement and create this conversation between the high note accents on the piano and the lyrics, applause, applause. These verses are structured with chain of fifths, root motion, also heard in Love of My Life, chromatic descending lines, which you can hear in Death on Two Legs, hook, and scale-wise descending bass, which we'll hear later in the guy's catalog. These cliches smashed together, incredibly strange, but they're essential to the key change halfway through the verse. Yes, there's a key change here from B flat to E flat. And thanks to those arrangements, it's flawless, seamless. Vocally, Freddie's shift from falsetto to sharp chest voice, that desperation, now I've gone and thrown it all away, appropriately 
a crash of cymbals and snares. The drums are tight, clean. We'll hear some great variations of drum performance from Raj through the song. The dynamics as the chords change from all the boys on their instruments, they're absolutely dialed in. When the second verse begins, Brian appears quietly, adding harmonics to Freddie's piano hook and a beautiful touch of chime-like effect following shivers down my spine, which was accomplished by plucking the guitar above the bridge. Then we get to it. Gotta leave you all behind and face the truth. Ah, there's Brian on glorious guitar, emphasizing the weight of that moment. The backing ooze, and especially that any way the wind blows, it echoes the earlier motifs, and we'll hear it again, and it's part of the key of what brings this piece together. These repeated bits scattered throughout. With that climactic, never been born at all, we feel for Freddie, and we feel it ourselves. With Roger's drums pounding in, the guitar taking over on the lead, this guitar solo with those many flavors of Brian's style so lyrical. Up that scale and cascading down it is a variation of the lead melody, which Brian wanted to capture in essence. It's an echo of the same theme we've heard from Freddie previously. It's soulful, soaring, heartbreaking. This solo is one of Brian's most loved because people love to sing it. I talked about how everything in the song is singable, and this solo is no exception. And with a flashy climax, we're into the key of A, and full-on opera, complete with many Italian names and references to really seal the deal. The delivery is divinely done. The guys absolutely nail the intonation and the pronunciation. Freddie's vocals, I see a little silhouette of a man, are a variant of the earlier, easy come, easy go. And we'll hear this again. Yet another thread that ties everything together. Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening. The harmonies here have many, many half-steps or semitones. You don't hear the complexity, but to see it written in music is something else. You don't notice it because of all the layers, but it's one of the most complex things you'll ever see. This is the first moment where all three boys come in vocally with the layers upon layers of harmonies, and they all sang every part. I have to elaborate about this. There's a bit of an assumption that Roger always sings high, Freddie takes the lead kind of in the middle, and Brian's on the bottom. With this song, the guys all sang every part multiple times, creating tons of voices, perfectly richly layered, rounding out the sound. So if you ever thought, oh, well, that's so-and-so and and that's so-and-so, in this song, they're all doing it. They're all doing every moment. When you listen to the section's instrumental portions without the vocals, it's really funny here and odd and impressive because, again, you don't have the operatic vocals. You've got these random moments of big rests in the music with no no instruments. And then all of a sudden, there's a crash with the piano and the drums and the bass. And it's perfectly unified. And it makes you realize just how tough it was to record the backing track without the vocals to guide you. You essentially have these massive amounts of space with nothing, not even a metronome, and the time signature changes. Beats are skipped or missing. It's a marvelous, organized, genius mess. Freddie and Roger's trade-off, Galileo, are strangely harmonized, actually, especially when they fall in unison. Magnifico! That bell effect is created by the lead tone singing and holding a note, with other voices chiming in and singing the harmonies one after the other, sustaining each note as they go, and you end with a complete chord. We're moving on. Bismillah, we will not let you go. This moment, there's timpani striking with the bismillah syllables. It's not immediately obvious, but its presence is there. So much room ambience and a feeling of big Rogers sustained. Let him go. Wasn't planned, but the guys liked it. Never, never let me go. Another beautiful cascade of harmonies. But that moment before the bell effect here, have you ever listened to it as the nevers come in before the let me goes cease? It's a sneaky and effective arrangement. And the no, 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 no. Those harmonies, go look them up. They're everywhere. It's incredible. That is one of the most complex things Queen Freddie has ever written. When Freddie bursts in angrily with Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia, 
It's as though he's preparing us for the heaviness that's about to hit. Twelve voices make up the Beelzebub gloriousness. I love that expression there. And the tritone leap in the harmonies, and with a buildup, plenty of percussion, and an intense high B-flat from Raj for me, right? The rock is back, and not just in the guitars. The drums sound different here, partially because there are overdubs for more intensity, but there was also a different sound setup. The guys were adamant about room ambience and capturing that air between instrument and microphone. It was essential to rounding out the sound and the frequencies. The drums throughout this section are notably heavier and boomier. The guitar, how we love singing it, and the genius of the arrangement. Whereas Brian constructed the moody guitar solo before the opera, here, Freddie specifically played for Brian what he wanted. These power chords, the syncopation. Speaking of syncopation, polyrhythms. We talked about this. Two time signatures simultaneously. 4-4 four, four, and 12-8 specifically. You can hear this if you listen to the piano and drums and contrast it with Brian's guitar and John's bass. But there's even a drum riff that's also following 12-8 right alongside 4-4. Four, four. So you've got that, you know... You've got the beat, dun 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 obviously 4-4. Four, four. But what you also have is the right alongside it. Genius. Freddie's delivery here with double-tracked lead vocals ever so slightly varied from each other is sharp, angry, sure, and aggressive. We've got a lot of mixolydian chords happening in this rock section. Remember the seventh note? of the scale is flattened, creates a tension and a strength in the sound. Very cool, Brian. Those scales and the riffs Brian plays, he's admitted how tough they are. And I've seen people attempt to play them. And cymbals, there's Raj always making his presence known. Count the number of cymbal crashes you hear. I should have done it (laughs) before this dive. It's intense. The beautiful, soulful resolution of the outro. My ears actually immediately go to John's bass. His flowery riffs ever so subtly enhanced. He's a genius, that man. Doesn't get enough credit, deserves more props. And those oohs and the way the ooh yeah is accented with Brian's guitar. We fall into a dreamy softness, huge contrast from what just came before it out the gate. Gosh, the dynamics of this song. Before everything was compressed to death, yet a lot of loud, a lot of quiet. The drums fade, the guitar softens, Freddie quiets, the key changes. Any way the wind blows. There's that familiar lyric. Gong. (laughs) The gong. I love that the guys didn't use the gong that much. I should say that, that Roger didn't use the gong that much. But... They took it on tour with them because it was so essential to the end of the song and his striking it was such a melodramatic moment. I love it. What else can I say about Bohemian Rhapsody, you guys? It is a monster. It is one of the biggest tracks out of music ever. One of the most memorable things ever. One of the most loved things ever. One of the most sung songs ever. It's everything to Queen. It is the song that is Queen, overwhelmingly so. There have been songs that have been more successful, especially in the United States. The United States, by and large, enjoyed a lot of Queen's funkier, more danceable stuff that came in the 80s more, right? We haven't gotten anywhere near the pinnacle of Queen in the States because they didn't hit the big time with Bohemian Rhapsody over here in the States. It was bigger in other parts of the world, but that's what catapulted them. The world suddenly stood up and went, oh, what is that? Queen had suddenly arrived. And it was all because of bow rap. Very, very much because of bow rap. I find it really interesting that despite the success of bow rap, there are songs like Another One Bites the Dust, which is still, I think, Queen's most successful U.S. song. So much to talk about with that one. But I think I've exhausted <laughs> everything I could find about bow rap. This was a fun dive. I'm not going to lie, it was hard. I'm probably not going to have to spend so much time 
on other dives going forward, but it's kind of inspired me. You guys, I was hitting a little bit of a rut with my dives. I was getting into this routine. I needed something to come and wake me up, and this certainly did it because I had to dive really deep to find a lot of this stuff and to find the interesting things, and I had to watch a lot of videos, and I had to listen to it over and over again, again, and and just take it in for the brilliance that it is. It's really interesting, though. I I do have to say I read a comment from someone just the other day, actually, on Reddit saying that, and this was in the audio engineering sub, by the way. It's a great sub. If you want to learn about mixing and mastering, go into that sub. But someone said they find Bohemian Rhapsody, despite its complexity and its brilliance as a production, they find it to be very silly. So... Everybody has a different sentiment about this song. And I think that is another sentiment I've seen off and on is that people think Queen is quite silly because it's so over the top. Wow. Did you guys hear that? Massive thunder. (laughs) But anyway, long story short with this song, a lot of different opinions about it. It tends to be well-loved regardless of what people think. Again, even if people think it's silly, they admire it for what it is, a fantastic piece of art. It's amazing in that respect. Now, yes, it's amazing, but here's where I'm going to get a little bit controversial and you might even go and get a little offended. If I was going to rank my favorite Queen songs, like my top 10, I don't think Bo Rap would be on it because here's the thing. There are so many compositions from these guys, the deep ones, the the only the hardcore fans know about that are so fantastically done. I mean, I get goosebump moments from songs that were never hits. These guys were just that good at writing really fantastic compositions. This song just happens to be the song that everybody associates with Queen because of what it is. But you guys, at this point, we're four complete, almost complete albums in. We know these guys were not bound to any creative rules. They never wanted to be. They wanted to go outside and do their thing. They wanted to defy the expectations. They wanted to ignore the critics, and so they did. And they were massively successful with it. So yes, I love this song, but there are so many other songs I love so much more. I know, controversial. But hey, we're gonna get to more of those songs. And I'm excited to go into those because, as I said, I hit this kind of weird lull. And going through Bohemian Rhapsody has revived my interest in doing this. It's made me more enthusiastic again. And I want to dig in more to the individual elements of the instrumentation of the songs. The bass, the drums, the guitar. I I think I talk about the guitar a lot. I talk about Roger's drumming a lot. I talk about John, but not enough. I need to break that stuff down more to get into the intricacies of the amazingness of these numbers. But ladies and gents, that is Bohemian Rhapsody. What else is there to say? Nothing. Go listen to it again. Go watch a live performance again. Montreal is great. But honestly, the live at Wembley, 86, that's a really fantastic performance. Freddie sounds so good there. There were moments there, as I said, in the latter 70s where they recorded an album and immediately went on tour and they suffered because of it. But I think those later performances are so refined, honed in polished. It's magic. That's appropriate. That was the magic tour. Anyway, keep yourselves alive. I hope you enjoyed this and got something fun out of it. I know I learned a lot. My goodness. I'm always learning something new as I go through these, but I'm done. My voice is fried and it's pouring rain. I hope you guys are having a great day wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you're with. Enjoy it. And I'll be back next time.